All right. Today um, we'll talk about the second ecumenical council, and this was the council in 381 in Constantinople. The term ecumenical council refers to those councils that were uh, accepted by the church later as representing the church's theology in a kind of universal way. The Council of, of Constantinople, in fact, is, a, is an excellent uh, example of what an ecumenical council is not. Ecumenical councils are not just the councils where everyone attends. In the period uh, between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, there were uh, several, a number of, of major councils that attempted to include the bishops of the entire uh, Orthodox world. And we do not count them as ecumenical councils, although in the sense they are general councils, but uh, their, their doctrinal decisions were not endorsed by the church subsequently as being authoritative for the whole church. Um, and I will mention some of those, but the Council of Constantinople, on the other hand, was a actually a rather small regional council. Uh, well, it had, it had about, I think, 150 bishops attending, so it wasn't tiny, but it was not uh, as large as the previous councils. And in some sense, you would say it was a kind of a regional council. But its decisions, and it's, it's interesting also that its decisions were not immediately uh, accepted by the Western part of the church. Uh, but as I explained the council, it's, you could see it in, in some ways, it seems a very unlikely council to be an ecumenical council, yet it was accepted by the church um, almost immediately as uh, being authoritative, and it's uh, the creed that comes from this uh, council, the creed that we have said ever since in the church, and uh, it's always been numbered as the second ecumenical council. So this uh, is a good example of that it's really the church's acceptance that makes something authoritative, not the things that you do. You can't mechanically uh, create authority in the church. Uh, so this where today, you know, in recent years, somebody would say, well, let, we'll get, let's get together, we'll have the Eighth Ecumenical Council. But you can't, you can't do that. You can have a general council. You can have a world council, but the ecumenical status, the authority of the church doesn't come by the number of people attending. It comes by the stamp of the Holy Spirit that comes through the church subsequently, affirming, yes, this in fact is, is teaching what the, the church is teaching. So uh, that's kind of what makes it interesting. Now, we, uh, it's a council that's seen as kind of closing the Arian controversy. Uh, as I said last uh, time with our one on the Council of Nicaea, the Arius was really condemned uh, prior to the Council of Nicaea, and at the Council of Nicaea, essentially, uh, from that point, everyone agreed that Arius was mistaken. And so the Arian controversy uh, that, that extended from 325 to 381 has not very much to do with Arius, although we'll see that there are some Arians that come back into the picture, but it has really to do with uh, the terminology of the church rather than its its doctrine because there were divisions over what was the proper way that the church should describe the Holy Trinity, what words should we use and what uh, what kind of language is, is appropriate. 
the Council of Nicaea introduced uh, a philosophical word, uh, the word homoousius, which uh, its only use in the church earlier had been by a, a heretic, uh, a, a modalist heretic, but uh, then it was adopted at the Council of Nicaea to show uh, the unity of the Son and the Father, that the Son was divine the same as, as the Father, even though uh, a different person. Now, this, uh, so of the same essence. Now, the use of this philosophical term, and in fact with a sort of heretical background, uh, scandalized some people, and they became a movement, particularly in the eastern part of the church, to uh, limit theology to biblical terminology, not to use philosophical terminology. And ultimately, uh, this will lead to the use of the term homoion, or in this case, uh, it means, just means similar. And the phrase that becomes uh, the kind, actually the uh, st sort of standard uh, throughout the Roman Empire during the reign of Constantius was that the Son was similar to the Father according to the Scriptures. So that as the Scriptures speak of the Son uh, being like the Father, being like the Father, that's, that's what the Church says. So the idea was to, that the Church would kind of limit its language to the language of the Bible rather than trying to define uh, using philosophical terms. So uh, I don't know if you all were at the... The last one, but where we left off was kind of after the Council of Nicaea with the Eastern and Western empires, uh, some parts of the empire going different directions at first uh, under two different brothers, uh, the two sons of Constantine. One, uh, the, the Western church basically just holding Nicaea, the Eastern church uh, wanting to uh, back away from the term Hoosios, but also... Uh, wanting to safeguard the, the, uh, the three persons. So uh, introducing, of course, another theological, uh, philosophical term, but, uh, they, which they didn't put into the creed, but this they, kind of importance of the three hypostases of, of, uh, of, of uh, the Trinity. Now, with the death of the Western, the brother on the West side, uh, Constantius, the Eastern Emperor became the Emperor of the whole uh, Roman Empire about 350 and until his death in 362. So we have a 12-year period where he ruled over the whole Roman Empire. This was not a period where, uh, as someone, you know, reading some church history, you might imagine that, well, everyone who was not uh, firmly in favor of Homoousius is therefore an Arian. And, and so under Constantius, you know, Arianism was kind of enforced on the church. Uh, this would really be a mistaken way to look at uh, church history. The, the church did not ever embrace Arianism. It, it, one thing sorry, every, most everybody agreed on all the time was that they you know, rejected Arius. What they were debating about is the extent of the language. And the, uh, where the, on, in the West there was some uh, pressure from the emperor, it was to enforce the decisions of the of the Eastern Councils uh, regarding the uh, depositions of certain bishops for what do you call it disciplinary matters, not for theological matters. Yes. Just a quick question. Yeah. I, in my mind, I get a lot of these different 
people and heresies mixed up. Yeah. So Arianism was the teaching that, that Christ was creating. Yes, that's right. That Christ is not uh, the Son of God, but is a, a creature. So this, uh, so under even under Constantius, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a kind of imposition of, of Arianism, and in fact, when uh, during the time when he was sole ruler, there was an outbreak of Arianism again, which we call the Neo Arians, which were led by a with uh, a uh, Aristotelian philosopher named Aetius and uh, another his disciple Eunomius, whose name is more com- famous, Eunomius, because the uh, Saint Basil and Saint Gregory of Nyssa wrote book against the Eunomian, Eunomius, contra Eunomius. So uh, their no- name is known, but they they were Arians, but it was a very small group of people that again started teaching Arianism, and the reaction of the Emperor Constantius was to call church councils and to condemn to condemn this and the church universally kind of lined up to say no we reject we reject the idea of the arians that that because the, these were uh, they were saying that since the father is unbegotten uh, atheist was arguing that unbegottenness must be a characteristic of god so therefore since the son is begotten he can't be god uh, and this argument uh, basil St. Basil uh, rejected with the idea of the difference between the persons and, and the nature of God. So the father as father, as a person, is unbegotten, and the son as a person is begotten from the father. But that doesn't affect their, their divinity. Is, is Their divine nature is not dependent upon either being unbegotten or begotten or proceeding, for example. So he distinguishes with Basil by distinguishing the persons, what pertains to the persons from what pertains to the divine nature. He was answering the arguments of these Neo-Arians. And it was actually in reaction to the Neo-Arians that we have um, the councils that came up with this similar, according to the scriptures, was the formula that Constantius and, and the bishops endorsed. There was a... Um, but attempt at some other formulas to try to come across. It's interesting, the, the church in, in general had seen at this point they were no, not endorsing homoousius because they felt it had the problems of modalism, but they were trying. They realized that they needed something more to combat this new, since Arianism had come up again, they needed to do something. So there was a, a formula proposed by some of the Eastern bishops called uh, similar according to essence, the similar in essence rather than just similar, similar in essence, which ultimately the Eastern Church didn't accept. They stayed with this uh, similar according to the scriptures. But this formula, although it's vague, it doesn't mean that the people who endorsed it, which was the large part of the church, that that meant that they were necessarily Arians. Now, there were certainly those who endorsed this formula who may have been sympathetic with Arianism, but that was a small minority. There's a very uh, curious thing about when you look at the uh, careers of some of the people uh, in this time, there one uh, Acacius, of Bishop of Caesarea, who, well, he went to almost a lot of church councils, and you know he went to the council that kind of seemed to favor the Neo-Arians, then he went to a council that favored Nicaea, then he went to other councils, and he, sort of like every possible uh, doctrinal twist, you know, or, or way of explaining, and he kind of went along every council he voted for whatever they were proposing you know so it kind of 
so when we see this, we shouldn't think of this as like armies of different countries, you know, each one's, you know, we're the Homoousians over here and these people over here are for this and, you know, they're all mutually exclusive groups of people. Uh, as this person's career shows, it's really the same people just sort of wondering what's the right way to say this. And so as different problems come up, they kind of, oh yeah, that's, we can't have that, so we have to think of something else over here. And then, oh, there's something wrong with that, so let's go over here. And they don't, it's more indecision rather than uh, conflicting uh, factions, let's say. But uh, out of this kind of resurgence of uh, Arianism, there came in the East a desire for something stronger and with the death of Constantius, Constantius was, was preserving, trying to keep the church in a, let's say, a, a very conservative mode of keeping with no new terminology, no controversy, you know, kind of just it's something that everyone can agree to. So when he died, uh, though, this opened up the door for uh, more thought to go forward, partly because the uh, person who succeeded him was his nephew, who had secretly uh, returned to paganism. And he was name is Julian the Apostate. And kind of the ironic uh, thing is that, uh, in a way, his, uh, his reign allowed things to go forward because he didn't really he didn't care about the church. So he just sort of let everybody do whatever they wanted, you know. And, and that way, uh, the bishops, instead of kind of everybody being uh, locked into whatever had been decided, they, they were able to meet and have their local synods to try to work on things. And, and some interesting, it was during his time that we had this uh, Council of Alexandria that I read from last time about, which was the council uh, that Al uh, Athanasius held, Alexandria, and in 362. And this council, this was uh, Athanasius, uh, was the one who held to Nicaea, the Homoousius. And here in the council, he was willing to sort of accept the three hypostases. Because this is the problem. The problem was not really between Arianism and Orthodoxy. The problem was between Nicaea, which, which type terminology? Nicaea, which spoke of Homoousius, and let's say the East, which spoke of three hypostases. And there was actually a division between them. And then when the Athanasius, who was on the Nicene side, said, okay, we're willing to accept the three hypostases. The Eastern, the Patriarch of Antioch, uh, Miletius, who was uh, sort of a senior uh, bishop and, and a friend with uh, St. Basil, uh, said, okay, we would be willing to accept homoousius as long as it's understood so as not to lead to modalism. And these two councils, the Council of Alexandria and Antioch, essentially in a way, ended the problem, uh, but but still, it was a problem. Several things ha happened. One is that that within Antioch, there was another bishop who was uh, in communion with Rome, who had his own uh, Nicene episcopate, which was different from the people who were accepting the three hypostases. So the problem is, you had two bishops of Antioch, and in Rome, they were only willing to deal with the the one who was not representing the, who was not representing the majority, and so part of the, the problem uh, was uh, politically how to just to reconcile this schism within the church, and then to get a sort of formal recognition of both homoousius and the three hypostases. 
This process was partly also interrupted because uh, when Julian died, he only reigned for a short time, about three years. The, uh, the next emperor to take over in the east was one who is, is actually considered sort of pro-Aryan. That was the emperor Valens. And he wanted to really revert to the, to the formulas of Constantius and in fact tended to favor those who were more opposed to Nicaea rather than, than the ones who were wanting to accept Nicaea. He was uh, killed in a, uh, in a battle with the Goths, and then when that happened, the next emperor, Theodosius uh, the Great, uh, allowed the bishops to get together, and this was at the, the second ecumenical council. Was, uh, when Theodosius arrived in Constantinople, he called a council, and essentially this council ratifies the decisions of these earlier local councils which were, now in the creed, the three hypostases is not added to the creed, but in the, um, the conciliar uh, tomos, which I uh, did not bring with me today, the actual uh, original text is lost, but the, uh, one, uh, the following one is there, which refers to it. But it talks about uh, the necessity of understanding the Trinity in terms of both uh, the single essence, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all... Uh, sharing the same divine nature, and that there are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each has a real existence as a person. So this is the kind of the foundation of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity: is the reality of each person and the and the unity of the divine nature. Um, in the uh, I just just a kind of aside in the in the Western thought. Uh, the unity of the Trinity is often kind of uh, focused on this oneness of nature, particularly later with Augustine. You have the, uh, it almost becomes a kind of philosophical unity. We talk about the unity of the Godhead being the unity of, of, of the divinity. And there is that, of course, in the East as well. But, but in the Eastern thought, it tends to focus more, the unity of God is on the source of the Father, um, that God the Father is the source of the Son and the source of the Holy Spirit. So it tends to be uh, more of a personal model when we speak of God, we're speaking, speaking of God the Father and His Son and Holy Spirit, rather, kind of uh, as coming from Him, rather than in, a, in the Western, there's a tendency to focus on the philosophical concept of the divinity as being God, which may tend to make, think of God as a thing rather than as a person. But that's an aside and a later developments. Uh, now, the, uh, the council um, had another problem that it dealt with as well, and that was that during this time, the question of the Holy Spirit uh, came up, and uh, the Eastern uh, uh, Christians, Patriarch Meletius uh, particularly, had made some uh, statements, I guess, about the worship of the Holy Spirit uh, as you know, and therefore uh, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, as well as the that the Son. We so saw the original question is the Son divine, and so then uh, the Eastern Christians say, well, and also the Holy Spirit is divine. Now, this provoked uh, a big controversy in the East, partly because there were some uh, influenced by Origen who felt that now maybe the Holy Spirit. Uh, isn't divine? Maybe you know. Maybe he's something less. But 
perhaps with a larger group, with people who were, again, this fear of innovation. They didn't want uh, the church to be making statements that it hadn't previously been making. Now, into this, uh, trying to, so an example of this would be Eustathius of Sebast, who was a friend of uh, St. Basil's, who was not saying that the Son was not, he didn't want to say that the Holy Spirit was not divine, but he didn't think that the church should come out with a new statement saying specifically that he is. They thought they should he just leave it to whatever has been said in the past and not try to make any additional statements. And St. Basil tries to mediate between this, these uh, two positions during his life. He, um, he tries, on the one hand, he's supporting Meletius to saying, yes, it is, this Holy Spirit is divine, we should worship the Holy Spirit. But he's also hearing the other side saying, well, don't introduce more uh, philosophical terms and innovations. So he, he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit which, in which he essentially is arguing for the Holy Spirit's divinity without uh, kind of based on biblical and liturgical evidence rather than, uh, let's say, uh, a philosophical argument. And so uh, if you've ever read the book, it's, in some ways it's a very surprising book because it's very, it's, it's very uh, tedious book in some ways. It's, full of, it's all full of argumentation and a stacking up of evidence rather than being, let's say, a, an inspirational book. But that's because he wanted to be able to kind of convince uh, the conservative bishops that the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit was, was real, but he wanted to do it in a way that they could accept. And this later influences our, uh, our creed. The, uh, Basil was for, let's say, this, uh, for, he was for accepting the homoousius with the three hypostases and also the uh, divinity of the Holy Spirit without introducing new language, let's say, without new, without new, new expressions. Uh, his friend, the, uh, Gregory, the theologian whom he had gone to school with in Athens, had sort of the opposite idea and felt that the church should just say that, okay, the Son is, is, is the homoousius to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is homoousius also with them. So uh, he wanted just to sort of take a, to make a, a new uh, philosophical statement which would clearly show the divinity of the Holy Spirit as well. And uh, Basil opposed him on this, not that he didn't think that that was true, but he felt that uh, get the, to, to, to introduce a new new terminology into the creed would be again to sort of cause a, an, a schism in the church. Now, the interesting thing is that Basil died before the Council of Constantinople, and his friend Gregory of Nazianzus uh, became the Patriarch of Constantinople and and presided over this council. So you would think, well, well, which which side is going to win in the council, uh, the the friend who's who's presiding or the person who died? Well, as it turned out, uh, the council fathers uh, decided to follow uh, Basil, <laughs> and uh, actually Gregory, in fact, resigned in the middle of the council because uh, they people, uh, well, they didn't not only with that with that and uh, but also with the case of the schism in. in uh, in Antioch, the, the bishop who had been uh, in communion with Basil had died, and 
And Gregory wanted to put the one who was, had been put in by Rome to make him now the patriarch of Antioch and the people uh, of the, the fathers of the council wouldn't agree to that. Also, they, they felt that, uh, that a successor from within the Eastern Church should be put in as the next patriarch and that, that also happened. But if you look at the, now our, our creed, what you may not uh, realize is that the original Nicene Creed uh, the, what it says about the Holy Spirit in the, in the original creed of Nicaea is, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all. Okay. So, so that's why they were asking these questions about the Holy Spirit. Well, exactly how, you know, how divine is the Holy Spirit divine? What is, what is he like? Okay. Now, if Gregory of, of Nazianzus had had his way, he would have just said, um, we believe in the Holy Spirit who is consubstantial with the Father and the Son. And that would have solved that. But, because of this sensitivity about innovation, they decided to use um, language that uh, was traditional language in order that there wouldn't be an occasion for schisms, let's say. And so we say, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and who the Father and the Son together, and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So we say a lot about the Holy Spirit, but we don't actually come out and say he's homoousius in the creed. And that was to avoid, again, starting up this whole round of controversies about whether we should be introducing uh, new, new expressions. And the interesting thing is, okay, so even though uh, they didn't say that, uh, the church's faith, ever since, I mean, uh, so theologically, though, the church does say, in fact, in the in the theological explanation, we say, yes, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all homoousius of the same nature, of the same essence. But uh, it's just that the creed, the creeds were, as uh, Irenaeus says, were an inheritance from the apostles. They were something that the church had, they were, uh, they were the statement of faith from baptism that came from the apostolic times. They, in a way, like scripture, they were part of this apostolic inheritance that the church had that, in a certain sense, gave us a, a rule by which we could measure our own faith. Are we in agreement with what the church has always taught? And for this reason, the creeds are, um, there's a great reluctance in the church to alter anything because you don't want to... Uh, it would be kind of like altering the New Testament, you know, to make it more clear. You don't want to do that because, uh, well, you know, alterations may not, not, not be anything wrong with them, but you still don't want to do it because somehow you don't want to tamper with what the church and what God has given us. And so there was that feeling that we don't want to tamper or change things. And uh, this is why the, they preferred in the creed to use, uh, again, this con con biblical language that was not including any innovations, but the, the doctrinal formulations of the church did use that language because part of, again, the going back to the, uh, the Council of Nicaea was, again, this acceptance of uh, new terminology, in this case, homoousius, and then in the explanations, the term hypostasis, uh, which I think hypostasis is actually used biblically in one case, but it's uh, it's these are philosophical explanations which are not found in the scriptures for 
what is the Holy Trinity? The, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ doesn't mention homoousios. It's all, it's, it's new, but it would, in the face of a renewed threat of Arianism, the Eastern Fathers decided that they had to do something. They had to, to somehow clarify the relationship of the Son and, and the Holy Spirit to the, uh, to the Father to preserve, uh, not to institute a new teaching or, or to, uh, that, you know, to create something new, but in a way to clarify and preserve what the tradition of the church always was. As against, we could, so we can all agree, okay, well, those Arians over there, they're saying this stuff, and we know that's not right, but how do we spell it out so that there's a clear line of distinction between the Arians and the church? And this is what uh, the use of the, the bringing in of theological language uh, does is it was and but it's of course it's something that has to be done with great caution because uh, the the church we don't want to uh, change the church's faith but actually in the term like the three hypostases uh, although it was sort of with great reluctance that it was kind of adopted by let's say the Western Church it, it had existed within the Eastern uh, Church for some time that formula and was. Uh, held by several local councils in the East before it was finally uh, endorsed, you know, at the time of the second uh, ecumenical council. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I would just, just say that actually the uh, Church of Rome was initially, uh, well, because they were not included in the council, that, you know, and the uh, Alexandria, well, Athanasius had already died, but the, the Paulinus, their person in Antioch, didn't attend, and uh, and initially they were seemed uh, reluctant, but to accept this. But actually, it, again, this is a kind of work of the Holy Spirit, where like, the uh, the external factors were not there. I mean, we didn't. It wasn't a council that had universal rep representation. It didn't even have kind of the universal. Uh, uh, Participation in the sense of the the Pope had not you know been involved in setting this up. They didn't have representatives from different parts of the world, but because it uh, sort of manifestly uh, expressed the Church's mind on this, it became uh, very quickly adopted by the Church as the, as the Second Ecumenical Council, uh, sort of despite all of these other limitations. But, okay. Is there any questions? Yes. You mentioned the uh, schism over the uh, bishop, bishop in Antioch, yes. recognized by Rome, and the other one, I guess. Yeah. Was, uh, well, Miletius was the. See, the Eastern Church, uh, Basil, Miletius, these were all bishops under the Church of Constantin Constantius, and, and they were. Um, well, Basil came in, in, three, in under Valens, actually. Uh, they were under this church that had the this idea of similar the Christ, uh, and it was this church was not an Arian church, but it was a church in which there were Arians as well as people who were Orthodox. And so, the um, what happened was the uh, one of the bishops from the West, when he came to Antioch, uh, consecrated someone named Paulinus. Because uh, he felt well that, that these people he, they were not using the same formula, uh, so he just he decided to have a Nicene church. So he he created his own bishopric there, 
and uh, Basil denounces it actually very strongly. He uh, constantly calls on the Pope and everybody else to have nothing, you know, not to not to endorse a, a schism, but to support. Who is Basil? Basil the Great was a uh, he was the Bishop of uh, Caesarea in in what's modern Turkey, uh, and kind of up in the cent- eastern part of Turkey. Question being, is that the earliest or one of the early parts where you start seeing Rome trying to exert some kind of unilateral? Uh, no, because it wasn't really uh, Rome doing it. It was, it was a, a Western bishop, uh, Lucifer of Cagliari, came over and decided to uh, just put another bishop into Antioch. And the problem was that that bishop uh, was recognized by the, the West and by Athanasius and uh, and whereas the bishop who was already there, Miletius, was the one who held the council that he would be willing to accept Nicaea and Homoousius if there would be certain safeguards. So what Basil is saying, well look, uh, we all have the same faith, we just need to agree on terminology and, and you're somebody coming and setting up another church here in, in, uh, in Antioch is not Solving the problem, you're just creating a division. So he uh, he persistently and and to us it, we might think well yeah maybe there should have been a separate church and they were you know because of course uh, the people in the east had questions about Nicaea this this guy that they put in didn't he was uh, but at that point the church was still not having questions again about the doctrine but having questions about the appropriate terms and this. Uh, what, what, from Basil's point of view, that was that was a uh, mistake, was to set up a, a separate thing. And actually, they, uh, uh, Miletius, the original patriarch of of uh, Antioch, was the person who originally was the presiding bishop over the Second Ecumenical Council. Uh, even though Gregory of Nazianzus was the bishop of uh, Constantinople, but then when Miletius died, Gregory took over for a while, and then he resigned and. Another, a new patriarch of Constantinople was elected. Okay, is there, oh, I didn't, I just wanted to mention something about um, this term. Uh, you might hear sometimes the Cappadocian Fathers. Cappadocia is a part of modern Turkey, and it refers really to Basil, uh, his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and his their friend Gregory of Nazianzus, and they were. They're put together just because they were all connected, and they were they were all bishops of the Eastern Church under Valens that were working to bring an end to the sort of division with the West and to reestablish uh, Homoousius in conjunction with the three hypotheses. To ultimately working towards the Second Ecumenical Council, uh, Basil didn't live long enough. To get to that, but yes. I want to be clear my Athanasius was a promoter of the Homoousius. Right, he was a he was a promoter of the Homoousius, who, uh, ultimate near the end of his life, came to accept also the three Homoousius, uh, three excuse me, three hypotheses that Basil was and the Eastern Church before him actually had been proposing. But he, um, and so he, it was really uh, Athanasius who kind of spearheaded the move on the part of the Nicaeans to adopt, to, to reconcile with the Eastern uh, Fathers, but, the, uh, but he, didn't also, he and Basil didn't live to see that happen.
there's, there's a lot. The Cappadocian fathers are very important, and, and probably they'll come into some other classes, but uh, I just this is just kind of bringing in how they fit into this council. Yes? Is this, now, is this before what, what is called later uh, Chalcedon? Yes, the Chalcedon, Chalcedon was the uh, uh, fourth council. No, it will be uh, a few classes away because it's the it's two more two more uh, ecumenical councils. It's the fourth council. This is the second. I want to make sure I catch that. And oh well, there's it's a, it's a it's a big. Uh, I mean that the uh, Council of Chalcedon. Unlike the interesting thing with all the okay, the Council of Chalcedon. You know, we still have groups that are not part of the Orthodox Church because of that council today. So. The controversies with that council, uh, in fact, just went on and on. You know, uh, this, the happy thing is that the, after the second council, it seemed like there's all this controversy, but as soon as after this council, it just ended. Everybody, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> we solved it. It's all, it's done, and there wasn't any more division. And that's really, as I was giving the example of that of that bishop before, who kind of went to every one of these little councils and agreed with every single proposal. Um, it's not that they were sort of virulently divided over some doctrinal issue. They were just uncertain as to how to resolve these terminological questions. And so once they were resolved, everybody said, oh, okay, and that was, that was really the end of it. So that was the, uh, the good news is that uh, sometimes you can actually solve your problems, <laughs> uh, in, but uh, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but, but at least that time. Any other questions? Yes. Would you uh, comment on the uh, uh, additions to the creed made by the council? Okay. Um, well, the, the addition that I read was the uh, section on the Holy Spirit, and that was made because the question of the Holy Spirit came up as to whether. Uh, the Holy Spirit was divine in the relationship. Of the, and so what it was was trying to show the divinity of the Holy Spirit without using the word homoousius. And so in that case, it was following exactly the example of uh, St. Basil's book on the Holy Spirit, which is interesting. St. Basil uh, tried to get in the middle of this controversy and, and actually was criticized from both sides. One, you know, from the Gregory of Nazianzus side saying, well, you're not being explicit enough. And then of course, from the side that thought he was going too far, and uh, but but exactly where he where he came out is exactly what the council endorsed, uh, which was to show the divinity of divinity without without using without using the philosophical language in the creed. Although after this, universally we do in the fathers in their explanations all do speak of uh, do use the homoousius to refer to all three people of the Trinity. Yes. Uh, how long did it take after the council before the uh, expanded creed began to be universally recited in the church? Well, the creeds were not creed was not uh, recited in the church at at this time. I mean, as far as in the uh, in the liturgy, it was it was done in, at baptisms. Uh, the the use of the creed in the liturgy, uh, I believe, came about. I think it's after the Council of Chalcedon, by initially by the those who did not accept the council. Uh, I think, I, if I remember correctly, I think they they started they started the practice in a way as a protest against Chalcedon. But then the church 
also, you know, started putting it in, even when as far as the uh, in the you know the controversy later over the filioque, the part of what was seen as an innovation in the was the reciting of the creed in the liturgy in the West. Uh, that was one of the things I believe when you're the uh, Pope is talking to Charlemagne's representatives because Charlemagne introduced the uh, well, his theologians introduced the filioque into the creed and they were reciting it in their in his chapel in Germany and uh, the Pope was uh, criticizing him for doing that but but it seems at the, in the in the conversation it seems that he's he's criticizing them both for putting in the filioque and also for even having the the creed being recited in the liturgy, which, seemed, which makes it seem as if it wasn't the practice in the West at that time, but I could be mistaken about that, but that's just my impression from reading it. So like in the days of St. John Christopher, the creed was not recited in the liturgy? I, as far as I know, I don't think so in his time. Yeah, he was actually, John Chrysostom was an uh, altar boy and reader, a tonsured reader by Patriarch uh, Miletius, so Basil's uh, friend, the, the, the patriarch of, of Antioch, who was the one who uh, started the Second Ecumenical Council. It's interesting, actually, a lot of these people that, uh, uh, that we've heard about, they're all connected in, in this group. They all are... Uh, uh, actually, the heretic Apollinarius was somehow connected with uh, Paulinus, the, this Nicene patriarch in uh, Antioch, who the kind of schismatic group he was originally part of that, uh, although ultimately, well, actually Miletius condemned him, for, condemned him first, and then I think uh, Paulinus may have separated from him as well. But I will talk about the, uh, so Apollinarius is living at the same time. He's a heretic uh, relating to the doctrine of Christ, and so I'll do him separately, in, because the future, the Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon, and the next several councils uh, deal with the, the church's understanding of who Christ is, and and uh, that's a sort of separate topic. So I'll <laughs> do that. So, yeah. The uh, addition to the creed included the uh, uh, one baptism and the uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Okay. Uh, would you like to comment on what was on the minds of? Actually, I don't really know why they why they added them at that time. Now, the, the original Nicene Creed ended, said, it ended with, and in the Holy Spirit, period. Now, one possible uh, explanation also, there, there may be some motives, but the creed as it exists in here was not created at the council. This was the baptismal creed being used. It's in Epiphanius of Salamis wrote a document in 377 that has this creed in it. And, uh, and some suggest that this was the baptismal creed of Jerusalem in, that was in existence. So it's possible that the council just took whatever creed you know, they were adopting that, that met their specifications uh, and just adopted it as it was, although there's a, there's a couple of word differences between this creed and the one of Epiph found in Epiphanius's writings, but, uh, but essentially it's the same. So it may be just that whatever they had in Jerusalem, they had that, and so when they decided to adopt it in order to get the fuller uh, explanation of the Holy Spirit, that 
it also had those other things. But otherwise, I, I don't really know why they are specifically coming at that point. But, yes? In, uh, in the Roman Catholic uh, Anglican and Lutheran churches, the creed which is used at baptism is the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. uh, where does that come in in relationship to Orthodox creeds? And is there anything in the Apostles' Creed that we do not consider to be Orthodox? And uh, why the difference between uh, I don't know, why the Apostles' Creed in the West and, and the Nicene Creed in the East? The Apostles' Creed is an early Christian creed, it, if, I, again, if I remember correctly, from about the third century. Uh, whether the, the church, remember the creeds don't come from, the, the idea of having a creed does not come from the Council of Nicaea. That was something that was from the apostles, uh, that just was, it was a baptismal uh, formula that was there from the beginning. And so, uh, Basically, the creeds all over the uh, Christian world, Orthodox world, would have been more or less the same, but they were not systematized. There was no sort of official creed. It was just a creed, a creed that was kind of passed down. So different areas perhaps had slightly different uh, renderings of it. And the Apostles' Creed is probably just a regional creed. And, and also the, because the Nicene Creed... Um, was taking a creed, I believe they see it came from Caesarea, where they took the baptismal creed of Caesarea and added homoousius to it. And then uh, in this case, possibly the one of Jerusalem, uh, you know, which just, uh, there, so there was some slight modifications made and a, for the sake of solving the Arian controversy. And then everyone agreed, okay, well, this is how we'll do it now. And so in the East, uh, that agreement at the council made that particular form of the of the creed standard, but that doesn't mean that you know every other church had their own perhaps regional version of it that was a little different. But and and somehow in the West, uh, the, the apostolic what that one what they call now the apostolic creed perhaps preserves that. Yeah. You know, so there's I think these are survivals of that time when it was just there was more variety and we have we have uh, systematized a little more but I, it's nothing uh, wrong with that you know it's just it's just preserving as long as as long as you're preserving something you know in the form that's, that's orthodox that's that's fine I think just from perspective <laughs> the final version the final version of the, the canon of scripture mm -hmm. was agreed upon at, at what time it was a gradual uh, thing. I mean, in a certain sense, the churches had uh, basically almost the same canon from the beginning with slight variety. And then as you move forward, that variety kind of disappears. And, but I'm, I'm actually not sure uh, what the, you know, where the official final form is. It's just, uh, it's probably around this time after after I would say that probably the determining thing was the uh, conversion of Constantine and the beginning of a where the church could work openly and had sort of imperial uh, support that all of a sudden you you tended to standardize more 
But, uh, but, I mean, it's not that no one knew what the creed was. I mean, no one knew what the canon of Scripture was till now. It's just, if you look at, you know, even the earliest possible documents have essentially the same New Testament as we do now with slight either uh, omitting some, some places didn't have the book of Revelation. Others would include the epistle of Barnabas, which we now put with the apostolic fathers. Uh, so it's not, uh, you know, there's nothing shocking and uh, different. But I actually don't know the exact answer to that. Okay. Any other questions about any of these people? Okay. Uh, well, I'll leave it that. There's there's lots more that could be said about the Cappadocian fathers, and maybe sometime I'll talk about them more. But yes. One other question. What are the original source documents upon which our understanding of this council, this period, are, are based? Well, the letters of uh, St. Basil are an uh, excellent source. There's a, there's a large collection of those. Uh, his own writings on the Holy Spirit is one kind of uh, Writings of Gregory the theologian, uh, he describes, I mean, he uh, well, we have his theological ones. The, the theological discourses were done in uh, Constantinople in 380, the year before the council. But also then he uh, he describes uh, this, his relationship with Basil and the controversies in some of his other writings. Uh, so we have not only his theological writings, but his own commentary on what's going on. Uh, from his perspective, and then and Basil is in his letters. I mean, he's he's explaining like the schism with Belivius. He, you know, he explains all that, and he explains why he, you know, why he feels that they have to accept the the Nicaeans have to accept the three hypostases in order because his fear, the fear of the East, was that if you just said the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are homoousius of the same nature, without uh, Defending also the persons of the three, the three persons of the Trinity, that you would o at least open the door to modalism, and so and he explains this in his letters, and uh, and he explains what he means by the different terms. In uh, there's a letter uh, in Basil's collection, letter 39, which some uh, attribute to Gregory of Nyssa, but it doesn't matter really. They're both uh, two brothers living at the same time. That describing the, the doctrine. And, but in Basil's other letters, he also talks about that, too. Uh, then you have the, for the council, of course, we have the creed, and then we have uh, the tomos. Not, we don't, the actual tomos of the council itself has not survived for some reason, but the, uh, the tomos the following year, which refers back to uh, the tomos of the council, has survived, and that just talks about the three hypotheses, and the, uh, and then just there's uh, you know the, the various people involved. There's other correspondence, uh, for example, uh, well Basil was writing to Pope Damasus, and there's other uh, Jerome is living at this time, and I mean there's a lot of there's an awful lot of documentation, and uh, there's also the church histories of uh, Socrates and Sozomen, which you can find in the uh, the Nicene Fathers series. The Nicene Fathers series, by the way, is an excellent source for all of this period because all the writings of Basil, Gregory's, the two Gregory's, uh, they're all in there. Uh, well, not all, but there's a lot of. Uh, basically, you could get a lot, most of the things. And uh, 
Then, uh, oh, there's also a, uh, an, what they call an Arian history uh, written by Philostorgius. Now, he was a, a uh, partisan of the more uh, people on the, towards the Arian side in the East, and he writes a history of this period also, talking more about the bishops that we don't, uh, you know, that are not our saints. <laughs> He's not more interested in them. But anyway, he got, from it you can get there's a there's a ton of information about about this whole period. So that's why, in some ways, it's very confusing because uh, that, well, it was a time of, of great uh, uh, well a lot of uncertainty and and uh, lots of divisions. And, and because it's so well documented, uh, you know, we can. We're kind of it's, it's sort of overwhelming if you try to you know to read it because it's because it's so much. I mean, in some ways, when you when you don't have very much, it's easier because you're just dealing with uh, you know one author's summary of what happened rather than than you know tons of uh, primary sources, which is what we have. Yes. I want to be careful how I word this question because I don't want it to sound as though I'm implying that doctrine and simple is not important. It certainly is. But in, in this debate about the nature of the persons of the Trinity, were there applications that people witnessed in how epics mm-hmm. were affected or how people conceived of our relationship to God? Um, not re- really in the sense... Th- I mean, one way, yes... Uh, Saint Basil, you know, was was uh, revered as as a very saintly person. I mean, so the uh, the heroes of the period were people who were distinguished uh, for uh, their sanctity, and uh, in Basil's case, he was uh, a great uh, uh, benefactor of the poor. One of the things he did in, in Caesarea was uh, he built a, a giant hospital and hospices for travelers and sick people, and he was. A tremendous uh, uh, proponent of, of charity as well as monasticism, uh, and and some of the other fathers like uh, Athanasius. Besides being, you know, they were all these people who were being exiled. They were, you know, suffering exile sometimes to preserve the Orthodox faith. Were also uh, noteworthy in their uh, Pursuit of an interest in the monastic life and also their interest in, in as I said with Basil, with charity particularly. Um, they were holy people. Uh, the, the controversy itself, um, again, you know, it's a controversy about the, the way to express the truth. Of course, these people often had to endure suffering, so it took a, sometimes a great deal of heroism when you're being exiled and sent away from your. Uh, your position, and uh, for sometimes, uh, like Athanasius's case and, and Miletius, uh, both for many years. So uh, they were, you know, they they were also sort of seen as as uh, heroes of you know persevering for the truth as well as and and willing to sacrifice their own uh, well-being for the sake of preserving the church's teaching. But uh, the controversy was not about. Ethics as such in this, in this case. I mean, that was it. Just, but I think that got the people involved were were saintly and and heroic people. That was uh, who 
And that was part of also, uh, you know, in the church, in ra- kind of rallying around them in a way, uh, what, you know, wasn't, was partly rallying around off, you know, now we're solving our theological problems, but also that uh, I think in a way to, to have the, uh, the exiled bishops return, you know, from their exile, the church was happy. I think also to, uh, the people in church were happy to have uh, the, the people who had uh, suffered for the faith ultimately prevail, <laughs> uh, you know, and to welcome them back into their seas. Is there uh, anything else? Yes? Have the uh, autographs of any of official uh, documents of ecumenical cancer survived? Well, not that I know of, but then I don't know very much about this. Especially the early period, I would doubt it. But uh, but I don't know about on the you know the uh, ones that possibly could would be some of the later. But I not as far as I know. But then I I just I'm not the uh, really uh, an expert on the on the manuscripts, so I don't, I'm not sure where they are. You know, which are the I mean where the Oldest, what the oldest manuscripts are for these acts. Uh, there is a, a very, uh, his name was, uh, I think it was, there's a collection of the, of all the conciliar documents called uh, the ACO, Acta Conciliar Economicorum. I think that's done by someone named Schwartz, but, I, but uh, that has all that and would tell you could maybe tell you what the manuscripts were that they're based on, but I, I don't personally know. Is there anything else? All right. Well, thank you.